Hi, welcome to Scientifica. I'm Bethany, and for today's episode, one of our journalists, Brit, traveled to Boston to attend the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. This meeting brings together thousands of scientists, engineers, educators, and policymakers from all around the world, and is one of the largest and most widely recognized global science gatherings. Brit was able to sit down with the scientists covering a wide variety of topics, from using Wikipedia in science to antibiotic-resistant bacteria. We're going to play those interviews that she recorded for you today. Stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Scientifica Radio. Here is Brit, and I invite you to follow me through the 2017 conference of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Enjoy. First up, we have an interview with Dr. Rachel Burks about having an online presence as a scientist. I'm Dr. Rachel Burks. I'm an assistant professor of chemistry at St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas. And I'm online because I want to be visible as a scientist in our community. And I also wanted to be visible as a scientist of color. I wanted to connect with other scientists and with other scientists of color doing work uh, to support each other as well as to support the communities we serve. And um, why is it important for a young student to, to go on social media? Social media is simply a new tool to do a very old job. Usually if you're a student right now and, and even your teachers and professors, you are in fact a public scholar and you might be a public scholar in training or a scholar in training. Um, and we have a lot of tools. You've, you've probably given a talk or a poster and social media is just a new way to connect with your peers and to connect with uh, general audiences. So it's just a new medium to add to the ones that we're maybe more familiar with. And is there, um so in social media, you, you meet a lot of different people, so people who, are, uh, who agree with you and people who don't. So how, does that, uh, how do you live that? I mean, that's the fun part, right? So you want to imagine social media as being kind of a cocktail party of a, of a good friend that you know uh, or, you know, some kind of a holiday party, but you meet lots of different people. Uh, and so, you know, you're going to have things in common with some folks and you're going to learn new things and you're going to disagree with other folks. Um, but that's, to me, is that, that kind of environment is, is where you can see real change and growth uh, in yourself uh, you can you know, change your mind and change your opinions and learn something new, um, but you might also foster change in others. And you know, what's equally important is that you might get affirmation uh, of your, you know, I, I am right and, and I like this and I'm, I'm working on the side of good. Um, or, you know, again, equally as important as I was wrong and maybe I should try something different. Um, and that kind of discourse just helps us all be better, better scientists, better citizens, uh, just better people. And do you, do you have experience of uh, yourself or people you know that uh, uh, create some scientific collaboration uh, through Twitter? Yes, actually myself, I've been able to connect with two different uh, chemists. We were in very different fields um, and we were able to collaborate to organize sessions at the American Chemical Society based solely on the fact that we realized on Twitter that even though we're in very different fields of chemistry, we share a, a same research challenge, 
which we didn't know about. We would never have known about because we're in different divisions and sometimes we get pigeonholed into our own you know, little areas and not a lot of cross happens. But on Twitter, you know, it's a big mixed bag. Uh, so having those connections and being able to talk about, you know, we have a common challenge here and I think we can solve this one together or at least make real inroads to it. Um, so definitely in my personal life and I've, and I've seen that happen. Um, and for chemistry, it's great because we have a hashtag called real time chem, hashtag real time chem. And you've got people sharing their research and ideas, responding to each other and, you know, have you tried this? What about that? You know, email me offline. And so there's a lot of that going on. It's exciting to see and it's definitely exciting to be a part of. And so for the people uh, who uh, hesitate to go on social media, what's, what, what would you say? Well, I would say, you know, why are you hesitating to be online? And, you, you know, you've got to remember that you can go online in whatever way you want. If you want to just go online and talk about only work and only your research, then you can do that. And there are people that do that. If you want to go online and only post cat videos, then you'll be very popular. <laughs> and so, so you can decide, number one, if you want to be online. And if you do, how that will look. You have complete control over that. And if you want to change at any time, you can do that. Um, so, but, and I also want to say, though, if it's just not comfortable for you, then, then don't do something that you're not comfortable with. Um, but maybe, you know, grow into the idea and, and, and get down to why does it make me feel uncomfortable. Uh, and then, you know, jump into it when you feel ready and if you feel ready. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Our next interview is with Professor Drew Harval about her studies in seagrass beds. Uh, hello, my name is Drew Harvell. I'm a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Cornell University and also an affiliate faculty and fellow in the Atkinson Center for Sustainable Future. Uh, our, our study today reports on um, reduction of bacterial pollution by seagrass beds in Indonesia. Uh, this was a study that um, was conducted over several years. Uh, we showed first that the levels of Enterococcus bacteria were significantly reduced uh, across four different islands in the seagrass beds compared to the non-seagrass beds. Uh, then went back and did the complete bacterial sequencing to identify what other bacteria could be reduced in those seagrass beds compared to the non-seagrass beds. And again, saw approximately, you know, averaged over a, a bunch of the bacteria, about a 50% reduction. Um, and then finally, we were interested in the implications for the health of the environment. And we studied uh, the health of corals, which is really the specialization of my lab. Um, uh, and showed that the corals were healthier, they had fewer diseases in the seagrass beds than in areas without, in, again, the same nearby areas without seagrass beds. And so uh, the implications of this work are that seagrass... Can you just uh, precise what is a seagrass and what is a seaweed? So, I, you know, we didn't actually talk about seaweeds, so I, I mean, I can say that, mm -hmm. but okay. Um, what we're studying are the seagrass meadows, and these are actually angiosperms. They're flowering plants, but that live underwater, so they actually set seeds and have flowers. And of course, seaweeds are marine algae that are not flowering plants. Okay, and uh, do the seagrass, uh, do they need to be uh, close to the 
to the surface? Mm -hmm. Yeah, seagrass beds are important coastal habitats around the world in very shallow waters. And so, um, you you said that the. Are you getting good sound quality with everybody else talking? Yeah, the, the mic is okay. I didn't hear you right now. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so the seagrass protects the the people of the island. Um, we think that the people from islands with intact seagrass beds should be healthier than people from islands that don't have intact seagrass beds, but of course we haven't examined that. But it does seem that there should be implications for human health here. Mm -hmm. So you, s you checked on the, um, the, the earls of the coral reef, and uh, did you check, uh, what did you check on the coral reef? Um, we have standardized coral health surveys that we've done uh, all over the world. And what we do is we run transects. We count every single coral and identify every species on those transects and then assess its health, what kind of disease it has or doesn't have. Mm -hmm. And do you also check the fish and uh, the, the animals living in the coral reef and in the seagrass meadows? Uh, we haven't done that yet. It would be really interesting to also assess the health of the fish, and that's a, that's a further study we'd like to do. And what are the implications of your work for the, for the fisheries or for the aquaculture or for the people around? I mean, the implications of this work are that seagrass beds um, are good at cleaning coastal pollution. And so uh, they could be very valuable uh, both in making water cleaner for aquaculture, but also for absorbing some of the nutrients that come from aquaculture practices. Uh, and, and in fact, one of our other studies is looking at mariculture, which is the um, the growing of marine algae uh, in a in a mariculture setting, and whether the health of, of that operation is more successful in seagrass beds. Okay, because in Indonesia there is a lot of uh, aquaculture with uh, algae, and um, in the conference you mentioned that uh, some people don't like to have seagrass around there. Uh, around the, the, the algae, so uh, what did you see up there? Well, this is the next study we're doing, and so this work isn't published yet, so it's still in development, but um, the initial results look as though the, um, uh, the algae are, have lower levels of ice ice disease inside the seagrass beds than outside the seagrass beds, and we're following up to finish that work. What is the disease you are talking about? Oh, it's called ice ice. It's a, it's a, we think it's a fungal disease uh, that eats away at the, um, the algae. Okay. Thank you. Our last interview for today will be with Erica Kanin from Snow Lab. Hi, my name is Erica Caden. I am a research scientist at Snow Lab, the deep underground particle physics lab in Northern Ontario. At Snow Lab, we study primarily particle physics, neutrinos, and dark matter, but we have recently branched off and devoted some space to studying uh, biology and genomics. And wh what are you doing up there uh, with the, what is the, the, the link between uh, the theoretical physics and the biology? So Snow Lab is uniquely situated to study neutrinos and dark matter because the lab is two kilometers underground in 
the Valais Creighton Mine in Sudbury, Ontario. Being two kilometers underground means that we remove all of the ambient radiation uh, around us on surface that is normal to human life, but would blind our very sensitive detectors looking for very rare particle interactions. So that is how Snow Lab developed as a uh, underground physics laboratory. But the ability to conduct experiments in a low radiation environment was very attractive to uh, certain genomics and biological research that are looking for uh, the effects of radiation and then especially the effects of the absence of radiation. And, uh, and uh, what did you see? So the results will be forthcoming soon, but for instance in studying fruit flies, which are a great model for studying people, uh, they have shown that being deep underground you experience higher pressure, about 20% higher pressure than you do on surface, higher atmospheric pressure. So that can cloud your thinking. It can change how you are functioning. So studying fruit flies, they've shown that uh, approximately 15% of the metabolites, processes that uh, show how, how your body is functioning, have changed from simply one trip underground. So this is a large fraction of the fruit fly's life, but then that is applicable to studying the effects of pressure on people. Miners that work underground for decades, how does working underground change their bodily, how their body works? And um, how is the, the, because you are in a mine and you said that it's an active mine, so uh, how is the interaction between the scientists and the miners? So we travel in the same cage, the same industrial elevator as the miners do. We are wearing the same uh, protective equipment, coveralls, boots, hard hats, camp la cap lamps, gloves, belts, as the miners do. And from our descent two kilometers underground, we then walk a kilometer and a half to the lab. So the lab is in an area of the mine in which there is no ore, which makes it useful for us because they're not blasting at our door looking for nickel and copper as they are everywhere else in the mine. Uh, but the lab itself is a class 2000 clean room. So we, when we enter, we have to wash the dirt off our boots. We have to shower completely. Every single item that comes into the lab must be washed and scrubbed by hand to remove any mine dust. We have to wash the dust off of ourselves and change into clean coveralls, clean boots, clean hard hats, wear hairnets. Uh, the entire lab is operated as a clean room and the centers of all of our detectors are in an even cleaner environment. Mm -hmm. So physically things have to be cleaned and removed from dust, but radioactively the materials that all of our experiments are made from must also be uh, made from clean materials. And uh, how, uh, how much time does it take to, uh, so from the, the, enter, uh, the entrance, so uh, how many times, oh, sorry. How much time does it take uh, from the entrance of the mine to the lab? It's about 20, 15 minutes maybe to walk, but it's three and a half minutes to descend on the cage. So it travels at about 40 kilometers an hour straight down into the earth. 
So from when you leave surface at 6 a.m., your day in the lab actually starts at around 10 to 7. Yeah. Because also you have to wash yourself and you so on. You have to wash on. yourself yeah. and everything. And the, uh, we have to check that the uh, lab is safe. So when the miners are blasting and looking for ore, it can create bad air. Uh, so we have to check the entire uh, drift as we're walking to the lab and the uh, responsible person that day, the lab coordinator has to check to make sure that no bad air has gotten into the lab uh, that would be a danger to the uh, everyone who works there. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Next, we'll be going into the poster session from the conference. These sessions are an opportunity for students to present their research. Our first session is from a student at the University of Rhode Island. So we are at the poster session and uh, let's begin. Hi, I'm Vanessa Kalm. I'm a student at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, this research that I'm talking about today was done at the National Institutes of Health as part of the Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. So we know that in humans, people who are more responsive to the stimulant effects of alcohol are more likely to drink heavily and become alcoholics. But we don't know what causes some people to be more responsive to those stimulant effects while some people are more responsive to the depressant effects. They just get sleepy and want to pass out. So the research I'm talking about today is looking at genetic knockout mice who are missing different types of those dopamine D2 receptors to try to figure out why people have those different responses, or in this case, why mice have those different responses. So our first type of mouse is an MSN, indirect medium spiny neuron D2 knockout. And we found that those guys are way more responsive to the stimulant effects. In the first five minutes after an injection of alcohol, they become way hyperactive. Our other type of mouse is a D2 autoreceptor knockout. And those mice are the exact opposite. When you give them some alcohol, they don't get too hyperactive in the first few minutes, but then later the depressant effects set in and they are really intense. Those mice just pass out. They want to go to sleep. We also found that when you give everybody an even higher dose of alcohol, which should make them pass out, those autoreceptor ones who were more sleepy had a normal response the same as the control mice. 90% of them pass out. They lose their instinct to right themselves onto their stomach instead of being placed on their back. But the MSN knockout mice who were more hyperactive after the alcohol, only half of them even passed out in the first place. And the half who did pass out, it took a much longer time to lose consciousness for them. So we're hoping that we can start to use this information to maybe figure out why some people have these effects and figure out what makes some people more susceptible to alcoholism than others. Our next poster is about antibiotic resistant E. coli. So hello, my name is Michelle Kalu. I am an undergraduate junior at the University of California, Irvine in Southern California. And today I will be talking about work I did last summer and also continuing in Dr. Luis Motobravo's lab where we study antibiotic resistance in environmental strains of bacteria. So I in particular worked with an E. coli strain collected from water that we identified as resistant 
And what we did is we performed a plasmid extraction because we wanted to look at mobile antibiotic resistant and virulence genes present in environmental strains because it's highly characterized in clinical strains, but not so much in environmental strains. So what we did is we took the plasmids, which are extra-chromosomal, self-replicating uh, DNA molecules, and we extracted them, we sent them for sequencing, and we were able to identify a total of nine antibiotic resistance genes and one virulence gene called SENB, which codes for an enterotoxin, which is a protein that's released by bacteria, and it alters the permeability of epithelial cells in your gut, which can lead to diarrhea. And so what we found is that these genes are present on the chromosome and they are able to move. They are able to move from DNA molecule to DNA molecule. And we also found that there is a high similarity between our sequence of genes and the sequence of the same genes in clinical isolates. So these genes are present in environmental and clinical strains of bacteria. And what we hope to do in the future is to look at the prevalence of these genes in the environment, and we want to look at their evolution and where they came from. Our next poster will be about learning the immune system in high schools. My name is Cassandra Bombasuto, and I am from Poland Seminary High School outside of Youngstown, Ohio. And I did a summer internship with AAI, American Association of Immunology, at The Ohio State University to develop um, a lesson plan about the immune system and how to incorporate that into the high school classroom. Um, I did a 12-week segment on what the immune system is and gave the kids some research projects on uh, the immune cells. We did some vaccination research on what vaccines are and how they're beneficial and new ones that are coming down the line. We then did an ELISA assay that compared different patient samples uh, to see if booster shots and adjuvants had made an effect on the immune response. Then did some flow cytometry diagnosing um, HIV AIDS in patients based on their T cell ratios. And some antibiotic resistance and allergy assays overall. Uh, and introduced that to the high school kids that are juniors and seniors in my biotechnology class. Overall, they did really great. They thought it was very interesting and they learned a whole lot more about their immune system than they ever thought they would. <laughs> Any other questions? You said you, uh, you did some tests about on uh, HIV. Uh, in, in how did it work in the real world of the, the students? So we didn't actually work with HIV. We did, um, I made paper cells and I labeled them with different colors um, and we counted all the cells out like a flow cytometer would based on their colors and if they were double positive or triple positive and we figured out what cells they were based on their markers and plotted them into little flow cytometry graphs that I, I had printed out for them and they had to look at um, B cell ratios, T cell ratios, the numbers, the absolute numbers, the percentages, and they had to look at reference ranges for normal individuals um, to see did those uh, patients fall into the reference ranges or did they fall outside of the reference ranges and what is healthy versus non-healthy um, to diagnose and say, okay, this person does have, it's progressed to AIDS and this person it hasn't. So we looked at different reference ranges and they plotted it all out. And what is your best, um, what is your fun fact with the experience? The fun fact with the experience is that the kids 
were able to actually do it. They were too scared of doing complex things. And the fun fact was that they felt confident and they were able to do it. And it's not as hard as it looks if you have the correct information in front of you. So go for it. Our last clip for you today is from a lecturer at Cornell University about using Wikipedia in research. So my name is Mark Sharvari. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior at Cornell University. And I teach a large introductory biology course where uh, we teach the scientific method to students and that includes how to find information and, and how to use that information to write scientific papers and produce scientific posters. And while I was teaching that course, I realized how many of my students go to Wikipedia to get information. And lots of times, many of my other professors, including myself, told the students, don't use Wikipedia because it may not be a reliable source. But it's really hard to fight that habit since I myself go to Wikipedia often to, to get information. So I started to collaborate with a couple uh, staff members from our library at Cornell and designed this course that's based on the wiki education platform to teach students how to edit Wikipedia. And the benefits are that it's not only editing, but finding information and evaluating information that they use for their Wikipedia articles. So students need to go and, and find scientific papers, find books, and based on those, edit a Wikipedia entry of their interest. So many of these students are freshmen, sophomore, they are taking introductory courses, but they are interested in great, more complex topics in biology. So through this course, they can go and edit something that's, that's probably they wouldn't even take a course about for another couple of years for that senior, until their senior year. So with Wikipedia, they are able to, to study more about or learn more about something that they are really interested in. Uh, we also teach them how to evaluate the information. So we go through in the first few weeks, uh, we tell them uh, they are looking at fake articles, fake news, and they need to evaluate whether that's actually correct or, or incorrect. Are we telling them the truth or not? So we are helping them how to find the information, how to evaluate that based on the the references. So they are going through this little training so when they start to edit Wikipedia they can see what they need to remove, where they need to add something to the articles. So Wikipedia is really just a tool to teach them scientific literacy and, and information literacy. And another great benefit of it is that most of our students are female and the majority of editors are, are male. Wikipedia. So it's fantastic to see that this, these female students are taking our course and they are contributing to Wikipedia. So we are hoping to, to close that gender gap that you can observe now uh, in Wikipedia. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. This was Breed's coverage of the annual meeting for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. If you'd like to hear more from us, follow us on Facebook at Scientifica Radio or check out our blog at scientificaradio.wordpress.com. Thanks for tuning in. I want to thank uh, Bethany, who uh, managed all the editing of this episode. So uh, see you in uh, two weeks for a new episode of Scientifica Radio. Have a nice day. <laughs>